As we get started this morning, I just want to remind you that we have these uh, Connect cards in the pew back in front of you. Um, If you are a guest with us today, or if you have a prayer request, or just something you would like for us, your church staff, to know, please grab one of these Connect cards, fill it out, um, and then drop it either in one of the plates here um, in the front or the plate in the back on your way out. Um, We would uh, love to get in touch with you and to to get to know you better and and, um, to, to hear from you. Um, as I said, if, if you don't see us write it down on Sunday morning, it doesn't count. That doesn't just apply to me. That applies to Miss Trish, too. Thank you. Um, I'm, see, I didn't write something down, and now Trish is reminding me. Um, we had ordered those Christmas signs. Y'all remember those Christmas signs? They have come in, um, and so if you ordered one, come by the office and uh, pick, one, uh, pick one up. Um, they, are, they are here. If you did not order one, we ordered some extra, so come on by and, uh, and uh, pick them up anyway. So uh, do that. But, but please, um, just know this is the best way on a Sunday morning to communicate with your church staff um, because we, we will get this on Monday morning and we will jump right to it on Monday morning. If you tell us something on the way out the door, we're liable to not remember. As we begin... As we continue our series in Samuel, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We are going to be looking at a story this morning that we all know. The story of David and Goliath. It's a story we've probably all heard a dozen times, right? A story that we all think that we know really well. Um, And so we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, we are not reading. I know that your bulletin says we're reading 54 verses. Um, I don't dislike you that much. Um, So we're going to start in verse 1, and if you will just bear with me, we're going to jump through, and we're going to hit some high points in the chapter, um, but I will let you know as we move through. So if you do have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you need to grab one of those those, uh, pew Bibles, it's on page 247. And as we read God's Word together, will you stand with me as you're willing and able? First Samuel, starting with the, first Samuel 17, starting with the first verse. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sokah in Judah. Skipping to verse 4. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze-scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield-bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Skipping to verse 19. 
They, these are David's brothers, this is Jesse talking to David, they, your brothers, David's brothers, are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formations facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle lines and shouted his usual words, which David heard. Skipping now to verse 32. David said to Saul, Do not let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his, shepherds, his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it struck it down and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I cannot walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. And David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpse to the Philistine camp, to the, and give the corpse of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started walking forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we come before you this morning, as we read this very familiar story, God, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we could maybe see it with fresh eyes, see it again new for the first time. 
God, as we open your word, as we study it, as we look at this familiar story, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So as we look at the story, we have a couple of, of well-known characters, right? We have Goliath and we have David. Um, I mean, even the phrase David and Goliath, I mean, this is... This is a, a phrase that's entered popular culture, right? We talk about David and Goliath stories all the time. We, we love the David and Goliath story, right? We love it when, the, when, the, when, when Rudy comes out at the end of the game and, and catches the catch. We love it when, the, when, the, when the, the behemoth comes down and the little guy triumphs. You know, I would say for us who, who are Americans, it's even part of our, of our national character, isn't it? I mean, I mean that's, that was the story, right? It was, it was, it was the, the, well, at least the way we tell the story to ourselves. It's not exactly the way it happened, but the way we tell the story to ourselves of our own independence is that we were a ragtag, scrappy band of frontiersmen who banded together and brought the might of the greatest empire in the world to its knees. Forget the fact that it was a global conflict and we had the help of the French, but that's the way we tell the story to ourselves, right? Am I popping a lot? We better? Okay. So, so these, these David and Goliath, I mean, this is, this is part of our, our national character. We love these stories. But as we get started, let's look at these two characters. Let's look at David, and let's look at Goliath. Well, let's start with Goliath. So, so Goliath is, is this Philistine, right? He's this, he's this, this guy, and Philistia was, was a region, um, an area, actually, as, as you can guess from the reading today from Gath and from that area, and uh, Gaza was one of, the, was one of the, the cities of the Philistines. It was that region down along the Mediterranean, um, uh, sort of between um, the, the river, the Jordan River, and then there's the highlands, and then, then the, the, the sort of coastal plain was where the Philistines were. And, and the people had come into, God's people had come into the Holy Land with the order, right, to drive everyone out. And they haven't driven the Philistines out at this point. I mean, I mean, you know, Joshua was several generations ago. The entry into the Holy Land was several generations ago, and they still have not yet driven the Philistines out. And so we could ask the question, why? Well, I think you're going to end up with two answers. I think you'd end up with the answer the Israelites would give you, and then I think you'd end up with the answer that the Scripture gives us. The answer the Israelites would give you, uh, the answer maybe even that, that secular scholars looking at the archaeological record would tell you now, um, is that the Philistines were a very technologically advanced people. We see this even here in the story. Notice how many times the author points out the bronze implements that Goliath has. The Philistines are, are known, the archaeological record shows us, they were excellent workers of both bronze and iron. You know, sort of, sort of transitioning between what we can refer to as the Bronze Age and what would be referred to as the Iron Age. They were enormously technologically advanced, and they were a trading people. They were there along the Mediterranean. They were incredibly wealthy. You know, people who, have, who are engaged in trade, particularly overseas trade, have a tendency of having a great deal of wealth. And so I think, I think 
if you were to ask a secular scholar why the Israelites weren't able to conquer the Philistines, I think if you were able to ask a Philist, an Israelite in Saul's army why they had not com, uh, completed their conquest of the Philistines, this is what they would tell you. But what Scripture tells us is Scripture tells us that the Philistines have not been conquered because of the people's disobedience to God. Because it doesn't matter how technologically advanced they are. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are. God would have gone before his people and would have driven them out of the land. It would have been God who had done the work. Let's remember, we, we referenced last week the story of Gideon, right? Gideon takes 300 men against tens of thousands and, and successfully wins, right? And so because, because it's not about the strength of the Israelite army, it's not the, the matter of the strength of Saul's army, it's a matter of God. And so what we have here is we have this, this, this man who comes out from the Philistine camp. Scripture tells us that he's a giant, that he's nine feet, nine inches tall. And so he comes out and he challenges. He's, he's representing the Philistines. Now, this was a, a thing that would happen, representative combat. And so, so he comes out and, and you know, we, 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 hear, we hear how much his, his battle gear weighs. You know, I, I, had a, I had a lot of friends. I'm of that age that I had a lot of friends who, who were in the military in the early 2000s and the 2010s who were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan several times. And they would complain about, about the weight of their gear, but I, it, it was nowhere near what Goliath is carrying. And so we know that Goliath is tall. We know that he's strong. He's this giant. And so he, in representing the Philistines, not only is he physically a giant, he's also a giant to the Israelites in the sense that the Philistines were sort of these giants to them. And so, and so he comes out, and he's challenging the army under Saul to this representative combat. Now, if you remember, we, we talked about Saul. Now, Saul is a very minor character in this story. But if you remember, what did we learn about Saul when we first met Saul? We learned that Saul was a head taller than any of the other Israelites. And now as we turn to David, what did we learn about David when we met David? We learned last week, right, that he was sort of the runt of the litter. There's a possibility that David stood about five feet three inches tall. Now I want you to think, five foot three inches, nine feet nine inches. But what you have is you have a king, right, who one of the reasons that he was chosen, a king in Saul, was that he was taller and stronger and more handsome. He was the Israelite's Goliath. And Saul stays behind. And so that's why we have David who comes forward. Now let's look at David in this story, right? David, what did we learn? Last week he was anointed king, right? David has been anointed king, and what has his dad done? He sent him right back out to tend the sheep. That's where David is in this story. He's out tending, tending the sheep. And when the, when the word goes out to gather the people of Israel to, to meet the Philistines in combat, his father doesn't even, doesn't even bother to tell him that the army has gathered. He just calls him in from the field and sends him out like a DoorDash driver to bring food to his brothers. And that's when he finds out, right, that the army 
has been gathered. And so when David shows up, David shows up and he hears Goliath come out do, doing his, his daily, you know, sort of jeering, mocking thing to the Israelite army. And David ends up asking two questions. The first question he asks is, is there a reward for taking this guy down? The second question he asks is, who exactly does this guy think he is that he can defy God? And what we see in these two questions, we see two things. We see one, we get an answer to what, we didn't read this part, but we do get an answer as to what the reward was. And the reward was it, was, it was money, it was the king's daughter, which, by the way, makes you royalty. It was your whole family gets to live tax-free for the rest of their lives. I mean, this was, a, this was a big reward. So the fact that nobody has taken Saul up on the reward sort of gives you this idea, and it sort of answers the second question. Who is Goliath that he thinks that he can defy God? Well, who is it that's going to come out and trust God enough to do battle and combat against Goliath? Nobody has challenged Goliath. Nobody has answered Goliath. Nobody has, has decided that they were going to rely on God and step out in faith in front of the army and meet him. That's who Goliath thinks he is. Goliath is the one who can call out the hypocrisy of God's people. As David comes, he he meets and he says, I'll go out, I'll do it. And his brother, his eldest brother, maybe he's still a little sore that baby brother is the one who's been anointed king. His, his brother there in verse 28, uh, Eliab sort of lashes out at David. Lashes out at David, questions David's motives. You know, it is a, a sort of tragic irony that oftentimes the most discouraging opposition a Christian can face comes from other people who are supposed to be on God's side. It's really disturbing how many times when a Christian says, I feel called to the mission field, and all of these people come around, oh, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that. Go get, a, go get a good job, go to college, get a good job, make a lot of money, and then you can give money to the Lottie Moon offering and support missions that way. Oh, I'm called to the ministry. Oh, you don't want to be called to the ministry. Don't, don't, don't do that. I feel like God's encouraging me to start this ministry or that ministry in, in my church. Well, you know, we tried that in 1978, and it didn't work. So we're not going to do that again. Well, we've never done it that way before. You know, confronting an enemy like Goliath is, is frightening enough as it is, but then add to it your brother saying, you're just here for your own glory. You're not going to succeed. You're going to lose. The very people who are supposed to support you, to lift you up, to be praying for you, to come behind you, to have them do everything in their power to prevent you from stepping out in faith to the thing that God is calling you to do. The biggest obstacle to defeating Goliath was not Goliath's size and not Goliath's strength and not Goliath's superior armaments. The, the biggest obstacle to defeating Goliath were the cowards that were in the Lord's army. They were the obstacle to the mission of God. 
See, Goliath isn't the problem. What stops Goliath? A little piece of leather and a rock. That's what stops this this marauding giant that everyone was terrified of. See, the real real menacing giant in this story is the unbelief that dominates the hearts of God's people. See, the the obstacle isn't found in, in God, and it isn't found in God's opponents. The obstacle is found in the hearts of God's own people. Goliath came out and he said these nasty, horrible, no good, very bad things about God. But God was more insulted by Israel's disbelief than he was by Goliath's blatant and blasphemous defiance. You know, we should expect Goliath. We should expect non-believers to say those things and to do those things and to believe those things, right? They're not believers. But the people of God should know better. The people of God should know who God is, should know what God has done for his people over and over and over again. You know, and I I hate to say this, but it's true. The, the, The same spirit of opposition is at work in churches all around the world today. The church of God, which would be a bastion for godly ambition, becomes a place of cowardly timidity and unbelief. Our churches are full of Eliabs who scoff at every grand vision to reach the community in their world. And so, unlike his brothers, unlike Eliab, unlike the entire Israelite army, David assumes that God is going to bring the victory. How different would our cities be? How different would Fairmont be, would Robeson County be, if instead of responding with Eliab's cynical spirit, hmm, we can't do that. What if we were, like David, assumed that God was poised to work powerfully in and through and because of us? There is some amazing trash talk in the story. Um, I mean, it is. I mean, I mean, you know. I, 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 did any of y'all ever? Re- do any of you remember that that comic strip, Kudzu? Did anybody know that comic strip? Um, uh, Doug Marlette? No. Yeah, Doug Marlette. Sorry, his his nephew's Andy, and I never can keep him straight. Doug Marlette was a, a cartoonist, and, and Doug did this had this comic strip, Kudzu. And remember, they're always playing in church league basketball, and they're always trying to trash talk in church league basketball, and they never could quite get it right. They just needed to turn to this this story to learn some lessons in in trash talk. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a really cool story. There's a reason we love the story. There's a reason we latch onto the story. There's a reason the story resonates with us. Right? We love the little guy triumphing over the big guy. We love the trash talk. But what will happen is contemporary audiences, oftentimes what we do is, is, is we turn this into an analogy about the underdog. And we always love to cast ourselves as the underdog, right? I'm the one who's put upon. I'm the one, I'm the one who's try, you know, going up against the giant. And so the, no matter the odds, you can do it. Just believe in yourself like David did. You know, we're, we do this, too, in the church. 
We're just as prone as anybody. You know, we baptize it with spiritual language. If you trust in God, he will give you victory over all the giants in your life. If you trust in God, God will give you the rock to fling against the giant of your bad job or your bad relationship or your bad marriage or your or whatever. Just claim your victory like David did. But this misses the point. It misses the point. The, God does not want us to read this story and come away with some, some self-satisfied, cocky assurance that, that we're able to achieve whatever we set our minds to. This is not the Old Testament version of the secret. Yes, David overcame insurmountable odds. There is no reason that David should have won this fight. But see, the problem is, is that what we do, we read the story and we assume that we're David. But you're not. We're not. We're the, we're the nation of Israel. In this story, we're the nation of Israel. Our David is Jesus. This is representative warfare. This is, this is one side picking their champion, the other side picking their champion, and them heading out into the field in single combat. This is representative warfare, not just between nations, but it's framed by both David and Goliath as representative warfare between their gods. And so that's what we see when we see David there in verses 45 through 47. David said to the Philistines, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Not you have defied us. Not you have defied me. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all of the world will know that Israel has a God. Skipping down a little bit, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. This is David's response. This is David's assurance that it's not him who's doing the fighting, it's God. And so when he wins, Israel shares in his victory, even though they had done nothing to earn that victory, right? Our most fundamental problem, the, the biggest giant in our life, the problem, the giant that causes all of the others, the one that we most de must deal with first before we deal with anything else is our natural inborn separation from God. Our sin. And, and just like the Israelite army, there's nothing that we can do about it. There's no way that we can, we can conquer this enemy on our own. And so we hide in our tents, not dealing with the threat of sin and guilt and death. And so the judgment of God looms over us, and we are powerless to stop it. We need a representative. We need a champion. We need a Savior. And so Jesus... The Son of God himself 
becomes our representative, the one who fights this giant on our behalf while we stand on the sidelines and do nothing. Nothing. Jesus, Jesus was opposed by his brothers and his family. He was abandoned by all of his friends. Jesus is the only one, even after everything Jesus had told his family and his disciples and everything about the promises of God, the only one who stands firm and steadfast in those promises is Jesus himself, just like David. Jesus is the only one to run out onto the battlefield with perfect confidence in God, winning a victory on our behalf despite our disobedience, despite our failure. And so if we keep looking and we keep thinking that we're David, we miss Christ's victory and we'll miss the point. But when we recognize that we are Israel and not David, we see two practical lessons here. The first is this. Because Jesus took out the the real giant of sin, we can face all the lesser giants. No matter the particulars of your current situation, no matter how bad it seems, No matter what you're facing today, tomorrow, the next day, that is not the ultimate problem in your life. The real problem is sin. And that giant has already been defeated for you. And so whatever it is that you're facing, you can have confidence as you face it. Are are you scared of death? Jesus has taken away the sting of death. Jesus freed us from captivity to the fear of death. The grave holds no power over those who believe. Are you scared about the future and things just sort of flying out of control? Does that bother you? Does that concern you? (laughs) Let me tell you, as somebody who deals with anxiety, right here, pot, kettle. But here's the thing. Brothers and sisters, we already have real, eternal, permanent security. I don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. You know, are are you worried about losing your job? You've got something more secure than a job. Are you worried about, about losing it all in the stock market? You've got something more secure than the stock market. All of these worries about the future are rooted in a desire and a, and a concern about us being taken care of. God is going to take care of you. God is going to take care of me. Are you, do you fear for others' approval? Are you one of these people who worships at the altar of respectability? You care more about what others think of you than what God thinks of you? You've got the only approval of the only one who matters. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the mean girl at school thinks about you. It doesn't matter if you forget to wear pink on Wednesday and so you're out of the group. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if, you're, if you don't have the, 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 the cool haircut or the best shoes or, or if you've got the wrong job or you drive the wrong kind of car or you aren't vacationing in the coolest spot. Whatever the problem is, it doesn't matter because God approves of you. If you are a believer of Christ, if you have given your heart and your faith to Christ, God has stamped you, I approve. And if God has stamped you, I approve, who cares what anybody else thinks? 
If God stands for us, as Paul tells us in Romans, who can stand against us? Certainly not a nine-foot, nine-inch tall giant. Certainly not a bad job or a bank account with one too few zeros in it. Godly courage does not arise from the assurance that we will never encounter trouble. We are going to encounter trouble. Godly courage comes from knowing that strife and fear cannot threaten you. Man, the world, right now in particular, the world is scary. The world is scary. Right now, at this moment, the world is a really scary place. Brothers and sisters, it is going to be okay. I don't care what the economy does. I don't care if Saudi Arabia throws in with Iran and gas goes to $10 a gallon. I don't care. It will be okay. God will take care of his people. Period. The second thing is this. In this story, God gives a pattern for how to overcome challenges. Yes, we are not David. We are Israel. And I understand that. But at the same time, we can still see and understand that these things, as Paul tells us in Corinthians, these things happen to them to set an example for us. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So like the people of Israel, when we see Jesus, the true David, conquer death, the true Goliath, we should respond as the people of Israel did by following Christ in his victory. There, there are giants in our lives. There are huge obstacles, huge areas in which the kingdom of God is prohibited from going forward in the lives of those whom God loves. You know, if you're a, if you're a teenager or a, or a college student, maybe it's at school where you get laughed at and ridiculed for living your life for Christ. For, for, the, for the business owner, maybe in his workplace where, where he's expected to sacrifice integrity for profit. But, but the kingdom of God is a kingdom of advance. The more significant an obstacle is, the more our confidence in God should grow. You know, we, God expects the taunts of those who do not believe in him. And we should not be overly anxious about those in our culture who deride followers of Christ for their faith. We're told to expect it. And it insults God when they do that. But what grieves God more than, than the world's taunts is the church's failure to take him at his word. We must take our eyes off the size of the giant. Stop looking up at all nine feet, nine inches of whatever is facing you. Stop listening to, to unbelieving believers who think instead of the, the think, let us think instead of the size and the power of the love of God, of the glory of God, of the sovereignty of God. And until we do that, we're, we're just going to remain fearfully in our tents 
hiding from risk, but also hiding from the work that God has called us to. You have come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies. He will hand you over to us. Let us live with him, live for him, trust in his word, and let us abide with him. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number 63, Abide With Me.